Today, our conversation with the Star Tribune, the editorial board, it's Scott Gillespie and John Rash. Gentlemen, it is always a pleasure. A number of items involving the former president in the news, Donald Trump. We had this news last night that a federal judge rejected a bid by former President Trump to keep secret papers about his actions and conversations leading up and during the January 6th attack on the Capitol by his supporters. It's a uh, 39-page ruling held that uh, Congress's constitutional oversight powers to obtain information prevailed over Trump's residual secrecy powers, especially because the incumbent president, Joe Biden, agreed that lawmakers investigating the January riot should see the files. John, I'll start with you, and then, Scott, you jump in. I would love, absolutely love to know what President Trump was doing that day, what actions he took, what actions he didn't take, and leading up to it. But do we at times get caught up in this story, which is still vitally important, and forget about how powerful that that presidential privacy is, not just in this case, but in our past and in our future, and can that be conveniently forgotten on this story when it should not be? It's a great question, one for constitutional scholars, certainly one for people like you, Scott, and I, and everyday Americans to consider. For me, the metric is that executive privilege is important, if not imperative, for president while he or she is in office. President Trump is no longer in office at this point. And to be able to claim executive privilege forever is really, I don't think, what the original intent of the law and the custom was was meant to be. And, you know, we can look at other presidents, Democratic and Republican, if they were able to claim that forever. Uh, Things that were important to the public to know would not be able to get out. And indeed, you look at it at that point, you know, if and when a former president passes away, I mean, you know, does it go away then? But it seems that it's framed for when a president is in office so they can conduct the business of the presidency in an efficient manner. But once you're out of office, it doesn't seem like that that claim should last. What do you think, Scott? Well, I'd I'd, uh, add that I I think – that the courts will decide whether executive privilege uh, holds in this particular instance. And so far, uh, based on this uh, ruling yesterday by the federal court, obviously it's going to be appealed, as Trump people have already signaled. Uh, but that was a pretty strong ruling, uh, saying oh, yeah. that yeah. You know, Congress has the ability to look at these records and to uh, study what happened uh, on January 6th and to consider what could be done legislatively or otherwise to prevent it from happening again. So, um, you know, I'm also a journalist, so I'm pro access and yeah, transparency right. and accessibility. And um, I understand the, the need for executive privilege in some cases, but when it has to do with the uh, uh, attempted insurrection, <laughs> uh, I, I'm glad the judge ruled this way, and I hope that it uh, continues to go this way on appeal. Scott, I'll start with you on this one first. We still have the January 6th committee, and they have offered up a number of subpoenas 
including a number yesterday, Stephen Miller, Kaylee McEnany, among others. And, and of the ones we hear about, we obviously know that Steve Bannon said no, and we have to wait and see legally what happens there, holding him in contempt. Others are acting like they're going to do something, but it seems very clear. They're just playing out the strength. They're avoiding this. They're saying it's November 10th. I can play this out for a long time, maybe even month after month after month. And bank on, guess what? A year from now, the Republicans gain back control, and they would be significantly favored to do that right now, and I won't have to testify. What do you, I mean, is right. it, is it, I know it's hard to speculate in this, but I'm becoming more skeptical that we're going to get new, important information from the committee if all these folks just continue to say or play the game and do the lawyer game as they're just trying to draw this out until this committee goes away. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, both legal scholars and followers of of presidential politics, uh, national politics, have observed accurately that in the past, this isn't the way things worked. Uh, In the past, if someone defied a subpoena from Congress, Congress would... uh, yeah, wouldn't be happy about it, regardless of party affiliation, uh, and that uh, you know, and that the attorney general would act. And so, you know, I I don't understand what's taking Merrick Garland so long, and particularly in the case of Bannon. Uh, and uh, I think you make a good point, Chad. I think very well that that they might try to ride this out because for some reason these wheels turn a lot more slowly than they used to. John, is it any different for you? I think that, you know, Congress will have a limited amount of patience, maybe the courts as well, and maybe as importantly that some of these uh, potential witnesses may have limited resources. It's extraordinarily expensive to have attorneys on staff and to be able to keep fighting this. Now, they may have outside funds that they're able to tap into the party and the base may rally around them. But I think Scott's quite right that this is generally not how it works. And, you know, if indeed the Republicans do take over Congress, that's all already all the way into January of 2023 that they would be sworn in. And one would hope that the Congress doesn't move that slowly. I think one of the keys of this is that there may be some Biden officials or future Democratic presidential officials whom Republicans want to have in for questioning. Mm-hmm. And yep. beyond Liz Cheney and those who voted for impeachment, there was a surprise vote to hold Steve Bannon in contempt from a representative from South Carolina, a Republican. And she justified it saying, I want to be able to call witnesses if there's something that we want to investigate regarding the Biden administration, and we have to be consistent here. I thought that was the intellectually honest approach and perhaps a few more will come around to her view at that point. But one would think eventually that, that these individuals are going to have to testify. Otherwise, what good is this entire process? Let's pause right here. Come back. I want to talk about the Steele dossier and criticism at some of the media outlets who wrote about this, talked about this a lot. And now that you have one individual who, by the way, 
pleaded not guilty today, who was a fairly central figure to the Steele dossier. Have the outlets which talked about it so much when it was a part of Donald Trump getting elected, Russia, is it getting the right amount of coverage now when questions have been raised? Back in moments with John and Scott here on News Talk 830 WCCO. Linda's Construction uh, Time Check 152. Time to call for free attic insulation and ventilation inspection. Let me just remind you about this one. An analyst who contributed to the 2016 Steele dossier of allegations regarding Donald Trump and his ties to Russia has pleaded not guilty to charges that repeatedly lied to the FBI about its sources of information. Igor Denchenko appeared very briefly in court. Trial date was set for April. A reminder that Christopher Steele initially worked on behalf of a conservative website funded by a major GOP donor, but then worked for a different client, a law firm for the Clinton campaign, the DNC. Steele brought his findings to the FBI, which used them to help justify secret surveillance on former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. I think at times it's very clear to me personally that members of the GOP and direct supporters of the uh, Trump campaign could overinflate the role of the Steele dossier and the investigation into Donald Trump, because clearly um, there were many other aspects of this, including uh, the basis of Robert Mueller and his investigation. But John and Scott, as I bring you back in the conversation, I know Eric Wemple, I think is very good as the Washington Post media uh, columnist called out in particular CNN and MSNBC when they talked about the Steele dossier over and over and over again. They did. And the ties to Trump and Russia, um, the P-tape, every other part of it. And the question is, do outlets at the cable network level, at newspapers, at radio stations, if you've talked about something so much, and now there are cracks in that reporting, do individual outlets, do we in the collective media... Do a fair enough job of saying, guess what? Here's another part of the story that is still relevant because this this man's credibility is being questioned to a point where it's I think it's it's John Durham, right? And his investigation has raised uh, major problems with what he's what he's saying. John, how about that follow up? I certainly think that it will be imperfect, but there, there should be perfection in the effort to try to balance the news as it happens. And, uh, you know, I, of course, can't speak for CNN and MSNBC. I will say that, you know, if they did fall short per Eric Wemple's assessment of, of viewing both aspects of it, that's not the appropriate way to, to go about something like this. Star Tribune um, on the opinion pages, which is, of course, the section that Scott and I are uh, working with and working for just two days ago, we ran a major commentary by Eli Lake of Bloomberg Opinion called the Deepening Dossier Damage to the FBI and DNC Democratic National Committee. So on the opinion pages, we certainly have followed it in the main news section. I know I personally have read coverage of this in terms of, as you say, some of the cracks in the story at this point. Is it completely balanced? It depends on, you know, the 
outlet that you're talking about, um, and probably there's imperfections in that. But I do think that in general, the mainstream media, New York Times, uh, certainly Wall Street Journal and others, have tried to keep on this story, including when it takes this kind of a turn. What do you think, Scott? Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Eric Wimple, Chad, because uh, you know, he is the Washington Post media critic. He's also done a series uh, on the Steele dossier and the media's handling of it, which I, I don't generally want to point your listeners at other uh, news organizations to go read. But <laughs> if they yeah. want if they want to go in depth on the media's handling of, of the Steele dossier, that's that's a great series to read. Um, happen to agree with both of you on the points you raised about this. I think there is a credibility problem for those, particularly those networks that rode this horse uh, for a really long time and maybe, time. And, and haven't been, yeah. And haven't been as uh, outspoken or as clear uh, when uh, it's been discredited or when the holes have emerged uh, in the, uh, in the storylines. So, um, you know, I think that's something that we can say about news media in general. We're not necessarily as great uh, or as strong as we should be in uh, in looking back at what we've done and then, you know, and then assessing it in real time. Um, but like John, I will say I'm not fully versed on what CNN and MSNBC, for example, have said in the last couple of weeks, specifically on steel. I got to jump in. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Adam Carter with an update after CBS right here on CCO.